The New Statesman. Hello and welcome to this special podcast brought to you by the New Statesman's Spotlight team. We cover policy for those who shape it and the businesses it affects. I'm Becky Slack. In this episode, we're discussing a vital issue that affects tens of thousands of people every year and the poorest, worst, lung cancer. November is officially Lung Cancer Awareness Month. There are around 48,000 new cases of lung cancer every year in the UK. It's the third most common form of cancer, and in 2020, it was the leading form of cancer death worldwide. But it doesn't affect everyone equally. Incident rates are far higher among the most deprived groups of people in the UK, and there is too often a postcode lottery when it comes to diagnosis. Lung cancer is generally less survivable than other forms of cancer, so early diagnosis is vital. Over the next 20 minutes or so, I'm going to explore the reasons behind these inequalities and what can be done about it with a panel of esteemed expert guests. This episode has been fully funded by MSD, one of the world's leading pharmaceutical companies, who are active in several key areas of global health, including immunisation and oncology. Joining me from MSD is David Long, Director of the Business Oncology Unit. Also on the panel, we have Lorraine Dallas, Director of Information, Prevention and Support at Roy Castle Foundation, the only charity in the UK to focus solely on lung cancer care. And I'm delighted to welcome an extremely senior clinical and medical expert, Professor David Baldwin, Chair of NHS England's Clinical Expert Group for Lung Cancer. Welcome to you all. Let's start with you, Professor Baldwin. Firstly, could you tell us a little bit about your work and your expertise in this area? Well, thanks very much indeed for having me on this uh, podcast. I am a lung specialist, a respiratory physician uh, from Nottingham in the United Kingdom. And I've been uh, in that role for, since 1996 as a consultant and subspecialised in lung cancer, doing a lot of clinical work, a lot of pathway work, development work. And the other side to my job is working for the University of Nottingham where I do a lot of academic work. Um, started off in lung cancer epidemiology, looking at uh, variation in outcomes and services. Uh, and as part of that, we developed the National Optimal Lung Cancer Pathway, uh, which is uh, a major, major national in initiative and also uh, now developed in Wales and Scotland. And, and then I also did quite a lot of work on lung cancer screening. And, and again, we now have uh, a recommendation for the UK National Screening Committee to start a screening program in all four UK countries and have a pretty successful pilot program going on in England at the moment. So in a nutshell, that's what, what I've uh, been about over the last few years. So that's a long time and a lot of experience. What trends have you observed in lung cancer diagnosis and treatment over that time? Well, from a clinical perspective, we do things a lot better now overall. We do, we, we're better at diagnosing and staging people more accurately. And as a result of that, um, we have more patients that I think are correctly offered for treatment in terms of the, the right fitness, the right stage, and then the, the right treatment. And we've also seen some change and shift into the clinical presentations of patients with lung cancer from a good deal of people used to present with really quite late stage disease in almost extremists. The reason it, it came back to my memory really, it's one, one of the things you almost forget, but during the COVID pandemic, 
uh, where we turned off all of the early diagnosis initiatives because of the necessary measures that were, were, were put in place to control COVID, we saw the same thing happening. So these patients were coming in with awful large amounts of fluid on their chest, for example, pleural effusions, which uh, made them very breathless and they were desperately seeking advice or uh, late stage uh, disease coming in as well. And it, it just brought it home to me that we'd moved back 20 years in our clinical presentations uh, during that p process. We also saw survival rates returning to those, those survival rates previously and the surgical resection rates, which were stuck at 9% for many years of my career, going back down to that, that sort of level. So um, one of the things we have achieved and one of the things that's really different about the service now is all the efforts that go on with regards to trying to diagnose people earlier. I think the National Optimal Pathway is about trying to get people through the secondary care pathway as fast as possible before people deteriorate. And the screening program is about early detection, the very earliest detection. Uh, and what we need to work on, I think, in addition to that is early symptomatic presentation, which uh, is is an area where we're not doing so well and haven't really seen that much of a shift. And what are some of the reasons why people aren't being diagnosed early enough? Well, there are several reasons, but and it, it's, it's both on the patient's side, the public side, and the health professional side. The, the majority of patients come to clinic and there's always a story, nearly always a story anyway, of delay. And the delay is in sometimes the patient, they're either unaware of the symptoms or they were too busy or they were too scared or they, they found that it was difficult to seek uh, advice. And then, uh, and that can be depending on the patient and how, how they perceive the risk and their knowledge of lung cancer. Uh, and and that, that knowledge, both positive and negative knowledge, can influence positively and negatively. So if you've, if you've if you had lung cancer in the family, you might have seen a, you know, people die very early, which is often the case, and therefore you don't seek help because you think it's a waste of time, as it were, or not, not can be helpful. Or it could be the other way around. You, you've seen somebody that had lung cancer in the family, and that makes you present more early. So there's lots. It's very actually highly complicated. And then we have the, the public side of things where we have these awareness campaigns, which are very intermittent, uh, national campaigns, which go on for a period of time and then nothing happens after that. The, the effect of these tails off very, very quickly. And we don't know very well how that applies to the different socioeconomic groups, You know how it's accepted by the socioeconomic groups. We, we've, I sometimes think some of the campaigns are a little way off what I see coming to the clinic. People communicate on a very different level. And then there's the healthcare system. We have a primary care system, which is at the moment very, very stretched, if not already uh, over limits. And even before that, there were, was evidence of, of difficulties getting to somebody who could actually decide whether a patient needed to be referred uh, urgently for a cancer, cancer referral. Uh, and that primary care block it has been highlighted on a number of occasions as being as being uh, one of the reasons why we get delay. And some of the work, the research work, looking at comparative uh, early survival data from the, over the Euro some European countries that very good healthcare cancer healthcare data has shown that we're always at the bottom in terms of early diagnosis. And that thought to be due to the primary care system. Interestingly, Denmark have a primary care system as well, where that the same process happens, but they've recently changed their referral process to allow a number of different routes into the service. And they've now moved up on the International Cancer Benchmarking Partnership uh, statistics. So it's complex. It, we do have, I think, some solutions, some more radical solutions to try and address this. And then we've got the screening, of course, which is going, and we have the rapid pathway. So all of these things 
uh, are very encouraging, but very challenged by our resource limitations sometimes. Do you want to talk us through some of those solutions? You mentioned the word radical. I'd quite like to know what they are. Well, we've recently had a, a meeting which was sponsored by the Roy Castle Foundation, actually. Um, uh, and the meeting was was something I've always wanted to try and revisit again. And it's a, it was about this early symptomatic diagnosis, pointing out that, you know, despite lots and lots of research on this and lots of attempts, we've not really made any any impact in it at all. I, I, don't, I don't think we've made an impact, sadly. And what we need, therefore, is something new, completely new. There have been a number of shortlists from that meeting that happened, a number of experts, or a number of shortlisted candidates, and we've now prepared a paper uh, that reviews the outputs of the meetings and makes these several recommendations. Um, one of the one of the things that is is clearly associated with an improvement in presentation activity are regular campaigns. And these can be in different ways. They can be campaigns targeted at the healthcare professionals, so GP education sessions, bringing in a broader category of primary care healthcare clinicians pharmacists, you know, anybody that's in the community, making them more aware of the warning symptoms and make and and informing patients. And then directly to the patients, allowing them to have self-referral chest x-rays, for example. That's that's one area where we think we might be able to make a difference. That's not a radical idea. It used to be the case that there that was that was available when we had a lot of TB in the in the country many, many years ago. But revisiting that's prob- probably one one thing. And then the second thing is the idea of having a a separate hotline referral process whereby patients, instead of um, having to try and negotiate the primary care system, uh, they have a dedicated number, phone number, which they can ring, which staffed by people, hopefully from their local community, who are able to speak the same language, if you like, particularly the jargon aspect of things, who are following an algorithm that is carefully worked out to try and define the risk and who would require a chest x-ray, who require a, a CT scan, and a number of pilots going on, one of which is in Nottingham, which are looking at that approach to see how well it works by targeting specific high-risk areas of the community and seeing how that, how that works and whether, whether it's possible and feasible and also whether, it, whether we actually detect uh, lung cancer or not, because we don't know. But at least we're trying something new, really new, and, uh, and we've got to do something because we're not making any, any inroads into it in the current, current system. Let's bring Lorraine in. So Lorraine, do you want to tell us a bit about the Roy Castle Foundation first, and then we can talk about some of the ideas that, that David Baldwin has just put forward? Um, Roy Castle Lung Cancer Foundation was established as a charity to both look at support and information for people who are worried about lung cancer or who had a confirmed diagnosis but also to sort of spearhead some research funding because we recognised that lung cancer was neglected in terms of where if you look at the big cancers, the most common cancers in the UK and globally, research around breast cancer, bile cancer had seen significant improvements in terms of people having access to earlier diagnosis, wider ranges of treatment and therefore living longer, living better post a cancer diagnosis. Throughout the 80s and 90s, we just did not see that same progress being made in lung cancer, which is why the charity it was established and has been able, I hope, to contribute to both the development of improvements in research and, and initiatives, as David has mentioned, around improving symptomatic presentation. The other side of our role is also to offer that support and information to people who are facing a lung cancer diagnosis and to try and provide 
assistance in navigating, which what for many people is a, a fairly alien, intimidating and jargon-laden healthcare system. Um, so again, it's the support through that process is really important. And touching on something else that David has mentioned, the charity also has a role around raising awareness, both about the signs and symptoms of lung cancer and about the value of early presentation. Lung cancer has still got some barriers caused by our historical association with it being a disease or the elderly, more common in men, more common in smokers, that picture has changed so dramatically. And there's also been a huge amount of stigma around lung cancer, which acts as a barrier both to people who may be at high risk from presenting and seeking help and support, a feeling that they're not entitled to the best healthcare because there's an element of personal behaviour that's contributed to their diagnosis. But it's also been a barrier to the, at the moment, we think 15 plus percent of people who are diagnosed either as non-smokers or never smokers. So our understanding about lung cancer has to change if we are to achieve earlier diagnosis and better support for people. And we opened the conversation with a note about incident rates being higher among deprived groups. Is that something that you see within your own work? And, and why do you think that is? Well, one of the major causal factors for uh, lung cancer, one of the risks is smoking. And we know that if you look at smoking behaviour across the UK, is directly linked to people who have less socioeconomic mobility, people for whom life is more complex and the choices are more limited. So that's one factor. We also know historically that exposure to industrial carcinogens has been a factor. Um, so you perhaps, again, looking at traditional pictures of people who are working in a heavy industry who are being exposed to diesel and, and, and other um, pollutants. We also have an interesting and, and, and perhaps new and, and, and to be investigated area, which is looking at urban living, looking at high density cities and pollution caused by vehicles in them. And I, I'm sure that's a topic of an entirely different podcast um, but we, we do know that people who are living in inner cities are, have, have a high exposure to, to some of the pollutants there. And um, David mentioned um, self-referral and a hotline as being some of the solutions here. Do, do you agree with those as other things that you want to see? I think there is not one key that is going to transform early diagnosis to lung cancer. There are lots of pieces of work that will contribute to both ensuring that people at risk present early and also that the healthcare system is geared up to take those concerns and rapidly um, follow a diagnostic pathway. So David mentioned the value of screening, which targets those at highest risk and, and offers a, an opportunity to be diagnosed. Again, we have the issue often by the time people have significant symptoms they have a very a later stage uh, tumour that their disease has spread. We know if we get people at an early stage, the treatment options are better and the, the opportunity for curative treatment is higher. So we need screening to be in place. We need the symptomatic diagnosis to work better. We also need people to be primed. We talked about those kind of awareness campaigns having a role in terms of 
preparing people that sometimes cough, sometimes weight loss, sometimes unexpected changes in breathing. Those are important symptoms. They're, they're not things that can just be dismissed as getting older, consequence of, of smoking history, whatever. Those are, are symptoms that need to be presented and taken seriously. Community engagement, we talked a little bit about as well. We as a charity have been directly involved in many of the areas where we're seeing the rollout of the lung health checks in, in England because it's really important to build the confidence of the community that there is a value in finding out you have lung cancer early, that it does mean your treatment can improve. An example we have of some patient advocates who are involved with the organisation where three members of the family um, have had a lung cancer diagnosis. The brother had a very late stage diagnosis and very few treatment options and perhaps could be presented as, as a typical lung cancer um, patient experience who uh, died within a year of diagnosis. One of the other sisters went along to a lung health check and although her cancer was quite late by the time it was picked up, they were, she was well enough, fit enough, healthy enough to have some fairly intense active treatment. We've seen so many improvements in treatment opportunities that are now. So although she's living with late stage disease, she's living years on from diagnosis with late stage disease. And her, her sister, again, presented through the lung health check system at very early stage cancer, was able to have surgery and has had effective curative treatment. So those are the kind of different experiences of lung cancer diagnosis and the transformation we make to ensure people have early diagnosis, but also who have, for those who have a later stage diagnosis, they have good treatment options available to them to keep them well for longer. Excellent. Thank you. David Long, let's bring you in. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what MSD are doing in this area, please? Yeah, thank you very much. And fantastic uh, conversation already. I'm just taking some notes here. It's really, really great to hear the perspectives. I think there's some really important points that have been been raised already. I think um, the concept of sort of awareness of lung cancer is really important. Certainly when I reflect across lung cancer and other cancers, you'd you very much say the awareness of lung cancer is probably considerably lower than some other cancers as well. So I think there's a real point to raising awareness. I think that the point around the the awareness through primary care is really important. I think I think it's on average a GP will maybe see four lung cancer patients a year. So it's if you think of all all the patients that GPs are responsible for, it's a really small proportion. However, when they do see them, they need to act quite quickly. They need to know what to what to do on the back of that. So I think awareness of not just the I guess the patient and their carer, but also of the of the GP as and when they need to act is is really really important. So. And I guess linking to some things we are doing as an organization is trying to support the pathway because I think that lung cancer pathway is is, is critical for success um, in terms of getting the patient into it, getting them into it at the right point. And by that, I mean not in A&E, getting them to come into the pathway in the right way so they can be managed really well through that pathway and ultimately get the best options. So we've worked quite a lot on awareness in the past um, through, through the pandemic. Um, clearly what happened a lot then was Common symptoms of lung cancer are also common symptoms of COVID and other respiratory issues. So we really saw a really dramatic drop on the number of um, patients being diagnosed with lung cancer. So we were really trying to support as an organization, working with cancer alliances and patient groups to 
really target some awareness around if you are having the following symptoms, please engage with the healthcare system. Because remember, that was a time we'd been telling people, please don't engage. This is also, um, I guess, a population that isn't the most willing to come forward anyway. So I think that needs to keep going in terms of that kind of consistent drumbeat on awareness being done in a way which is really tailored to to the, those affected patients because they are often quite different from other groups. The other the other big piece of work we've been doing for the last couple of years has been trying to work with the trust within secondary care mainly to help around the pathway. Because again, the pathway is complex. There's a lot of different stakeholders involved in that lung cancer pathway and getting them to come together and understand how to improve things, we found has been really helpful in doing that, effectively bringing together different stakeholders to map back what their pathway looks like to them at the moment. Because often when you work in a a segment of the pathway, you're not quite sure about what comes before and what goes after. So it's really getting them to kind of step back and take a look pathway, understand how it is operating at the moment. I think understanding the optimal lung cancer pathway that Prof. Ball referred to earlier on and how do we close the gap to get them much closer to that. And typically what we've found is when people along the pathway have the capacity to take a step back, to look, to work together, they come up with really quick, simple and impactful solutions. But I think the point I really want to make is the healthcare system having the capacity to do simple things like this has been really stretched. Um, they do work when you get people together, but when the system is so stretched as it is at the moment, even having the opportunity to do that is very, very difficult. So, so I think that's something we're going to continue to work on, but it's probably also a call to ensure that with the lung cancer screening that's coming, which is great, with an activation of patients, which is needed to come in, which is great, there needs to be the capacity within the healthcare system to manage so it's just very important that we don't miss that really, really critical component that will actually make either a success or a failure of all the initiatives. And for those new statesman spotlight listeners who might not be familiar with the pathway, do you want to just briefly kind of explain what it looks like uh, in a day-to-day sort of real-world situation and where there might be areas for improvement? The National Tour Pathway was, was designed um, on the back of something called the Commissioning Guidance. Commissioning Guidance, it was designed to try to reduce the amount of variation we see in delivery of care across the across the UK. So we wrote that, uh, and that needs to be revisited as a separate thing. But but the pathway was asked for by the then Programme of Care Board from NHS England, and we were funded to do this. So we had a massive stakeholder consultation on a draft pathway. And essentially, it was agreed uh, following you know this stakeholder input, and we've changed the pathway. So it was a nationally agreed pathway. Since then, there are there are some 14 faster pathways that have been developed by the National Cancer Programme team on the back of this pioneering pathway, as it were. And what it does is it breaks down each stage from referral of the patient or arrival in A&E, if, if, that, if that's what happens, through to the treatment, the, the primary treatment uh, uh, date. And it breaks down each one into the, the very maximum waiting times that you're allowed to have and suggests the ways in which to do this. It is a a pathway on a page, but actually there are now, I think, 20 further pages that explain how to do it, et cetera. So for example, what happens is that when a chest X-ray is suspicious of uh, lung cancer, the CT scan has to be done within 72 hours and preferably on the same day as the chest, the abnormal chest X-ray. And then a clinic appointment has to be within five days of that um, suspicion of lung cancer on the CT scan so that you have a, you know, a very compressed pathway. 
And then all of the diagnostic and staging tests are meant to be completed within 14 days of the clinic date. So you have this compressed down and the potential for a full diagnosis at 21 days is there. Um, and then you have an additional week because we nearly always have to have an extra test or something, or not always, but quite often. So, so the diagnosis, the definitive diagnosis is 28 days, which matches the, you know, the diagnostic standard uh, that, that, that's now uh, the, 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 the sort of new, one, one of the three combined standards that are now, now in the NHS, England at least. And then you've also got treatment pathways, which are also very, very compressed, working to a maximum turnaround time. And the key thing is that the, the government have three targets. 31 day, 62 day, and uh, the 28 day target. But the pathway really, if it's worked properly, has all of these little targets in between, which are then necessary to achieve the final target. That's what, that's what I'm trying to get over today to, at the moment with, with the National Cancer Programme team. That it's not, it's not really okay to just have the, in terms of implementing, to have three targets. It's important for monitoring, but what we really need to do to focus down on the pathways is to tell the cancer alliances that the, this needs to be broken down for all of the pathways. And what MSD have done fantastically is to is to try to go into the system and say, well, where, how is this working? You know, wh where are the pressure points? And although a lot of the stuff that MSD was identifying problems we previously identified. It was incredibly useful because it re-emphasizes it, re-pressurizes the system. You know, it's one of those things, it's a bit like I'll say about lung cancer services, you've got to keep your foot hard down on the accelerator pedal the whole time. Otherwise, it all grinds to a halt. And it's just like that. You know, the, the accelerator pedal was pushed down again by MSD and we need to keep this going. I mean, it needs to be constant. And certainly in the COVID times, you know, what we saw is the taking off that early diagnosis process and the faster diagnosis process was disastrous. And it just made me think we've got to make sure we go get back as fast as possible. And we are. David Long, um, just thinking about putting the foot on the accelerator and the work that um, that you've been doing in this area, what else do you need in order to keep your foot down? Is there particular initiatives that you want to see coming out of government or elsewhere? Look, I think it's it's a renewed, a continued commitment to, um, to cancer. Um, clearly, there was a cancer plan we were waiting on, I guess, as a community for quite some time. That's been put together with a major condition strategy, which actually is quite sensible because these are the areas which probably impact health for the majority of the country. So, so I think it's having a, a broader holistic approach there is really sensible. You know, there is a considerable work required still around many, many areas. There are many, many stakeholders involved in the part, in the cancer pathway. Um, and it's very, very difficult to keep all of them updated all the time and all the developments, all the changes. I completely agree with, with Prof Baldwin around the sort of the details of the targets. I do actually think stripping them back to three from, I think it was 12 uh, before has, at least from what we can tell, it will help. It will help the administrators locally focus on probably fewer things to get those things really, really moving. We had some examples of certain areas where they were so focused on the two-week wait was one of the older older standards, which is kind of gone. And they were so focused there, they were using so much of their um, their capacity to manage that. They were missing on so many of their other really important targets, such as 28-day, that's the diagnosis, or telling someone they don't have cancer, which is really important. And also missing on the 31-day treatment and the 62-day because so much of their um, effort was on the on the 14-day. So I think a continued support from government to to help local areas focus on those things that are really important and to pull through on um, on the screening program, which will 
be not an insignificant amount of work still. And I think the one of the unintended consequences of those types of programs is the other things pop up in a screening discussion that aren't cancer that then more often than not, primary care will have to start to manage there as well. So I think it's a renewed call to ensure there is, you know, sufficient funding resource, um, particularly around the workforce. That's going to be something that's really... Um, we've rapidly run out of time. So I just want to ask one very final quick question of Lorraine. Um, and that is a similar question to what I just asked David Long there. And what would you like to see coming out of government and, and other policymakers and influential uh, bodies with regards to this area, in particular in relation to the reducing uh, the health inequalities around the country? We need an ongoing commitment to improving lung cancer diagnosis and services. It's one of those health conditions which is totemic of the inequalities in healthcare. And if we can make improvements for individuals who are diagnosed each year, we're making improvements for their local communities, for the well-being of their families. But we're also setting an example about how healthcare can be really effectively provided across a wide range of cancers and across a wide range of, of long-term health conditions. Sorting out and properly resourcing the lung cancer pathway is not an indulgence, it's a necessity. It's those kind of steps that make a difference to the health and well-being of people across the country. And it really, you know, we we were delighted to see national screening recommended. We are still at an early stage of implementation. And certainly, um, for example, NHS Scotland is just grappling with the, the practical implementation steps at the moment. We've seen the pilot sites in England. NHS Wales is about to pilot. And there's, again, still to see developments in Northern Ireland. If equity, health equity is, is a major ambition for us, both from a political point of view, government point of view, but also for us as a society in the United Kingdom. These are the kind of initiatives that are really going to improve the quality of life. Thank you very much, Lorraine. Um, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. It's been really great having you all here to discuss these issues and getting an insight both into the extent of the problems that we're seeing um, and also the causes of those problems but most importantly, to discuss some of the ways forward and the routes to improvements and solutions. As Lorraine just said, this isn't a luxury, it's a necessity. Um, and I think it's really clear from our conversation that there's not just going to be one uh, panacea or one big solution that fixes things. And this is about a multi-department, cross-government approach that tries looking at prevention involves industry and the latest treatments and diagnostics and also brings in patients' um, experiences as well. So thank you very much to our panellists, Professor David Baldwin, uh, Lorraine um, Dallas from uh, the Royal Castle Foundation and David Long from uh, the Business Oncology Unit at MSD. Thank you very much to you all. You can find more coverage of Spotlight's healthcare policy reporting at www.newstatesman.co.uk forward slash spotlight.